if it is your first time here, welcome. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor around here. And I just have to say, I'm impressed that you made it to church today on Time Change Sunday. I mean, if they didn't pay me to be here, I'm not sure I would come. So good on you. That's great. Um, I started changing my clocks yesterday at 3 p.m. My wife was like, what are you doing? I said, I got I to gotta make the switch now. I, gotta, I, can't, I can't go to bed and like not change these clocks. I'm going to start living in the future right now. And I went to bed at I think like 6.45 p.m. maybe. So what is that? Maybe that was like 4.30. Who knows what it was? It was still light out when I hit the sheets. But here we are today, and I'm feeling, you know, exhausted. But we'll make it through it. So we are kicking off a brand new series today called Follow Me. And um, I hope it's going to be great. And the premise of this series is actually really simple. What I want to do is just take a look at the life of Jesus and I want to focus on, obviously, what his teachings are. But more importantly, what I want to do is begin to look at the manner in which he teached, how he interacted with other people. In the bumper, you saw that he loved people. Wherever he went, Jesus was surrounded by crowds. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And, and the surprise of the much of the religious leaders of the time, he liked them back. Sinners, so to speak, non-Christians, unbelievers, whatever you want to call it, felt very comfortable in his presence. And yet sometimes unbelievers, non-Christians, whatever you want to call them, don't really feel comfortable in our presence, in the presence of Christians. And and so my hope for this series is that it will be a very practical guide to help you be less offensive when talking to people who are not Christians. So if you're not a Christian in the room, you might like this series because we're going to point out a lot of things that Christians do wrong. So to kind of flesh out this series a little bit more to help you understand the trajectory and what we're doing, on Jesus's, call it last night on this earth, so to speak, right before he was going to die, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was making a very powerful prayer to God the Father. And in this prayer, he was saying, you know, God, tomorrow is the day. I'm going to be dying. I'm going to be coming back to you. And I'm leaving the disciples behind. I've explained to them what I want them to do. I've given them all the teaching. They're they're aware of this, but here's what I need. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world with me, right? I'm I'm leaving. I'm not asking you to bring them along with me, but I'm asking you to keep them safe from the evil one. You see, they don't belong to this world any more than I do. He continues, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Speaking of the disciples. And then he talks about us Christians today. And he goes, you know what? I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. What Jesus is saying is that when you say yes to him, when you become a Christian, as soon as you kind of sign on the dotted line, so to speak, you don't get whisked away to heaven. That's just not how it works. When you say yes to Jesus, you are given a job. You are given a mission in this world. We are to go into the world and begin to tell others about what's happened to us. Begin to tell others about Jesus. We're to be sharing the gospel. Now, it's from this prayer that we get the, I'll call it a saying, because it's more of a paraphrase of what Jesus said. But it's said about Christians that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard this phrase once or twice. You've got to be in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? It sounds kind of paradoxical, kind of doesn't really make sense, in, of, what? Here's what it's saying. When you become a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you into the world. You're going to be living in the world. You're going to be working in the world. You're going to be socializing in the world with people who are not like you, 
with people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. You're going to be in the world. But let's not forget, you're Christians. You're to be a little different. You're not to be of the world, meaning you're not supposed to be of the world system. Rather, you're going to get your system of morality in Jesus Christ. So one of the issues that we run into as Christians is that we know this. I think fundamentally we know that we're supposed to be out there and talking to people about Jesus or at least trying to share our faith in whatever way that we feel comfortable. But what starts to happen, particularly with Christians, particularly with lifelong Christians, is that we begin to sort of wall ourselves off from the world. And we know that we're supposed to reach the world and reach those who don't know Jesus, but we kind of begin to wall ourselves off and begin to hang out with just ourselves. And we start creating what I'll call a holy huddle. Okay? It's sort of a holy, you're laughing because you've been a part of a holy huddle probably at some point in your life. And let me just say this. It's not a bad thing for Christians to hang out with other Christians. That's a good thing. You can encourage one another. You can support one another. And it is human nature to hang out with people who are like-minded. It's why people who like the dolphins hang out with people who like the dolphins. It's why certain people of political parties hang out with people from political parties, sports fans, yada, yada, yada. Natural. Not a problem. But if you're a Christian and you find yourself always in what I'll call a holy huddle, always hanging out with nobody but Christians, that's a problem. It's because the church, this church, is supposed to be like a hospital for, let's call it sick people. It's a place where anybody, no matter who they are, no matter what's going on in their life, no matter where they are in the spectrum of spirituality, whether they believe in Jesus or they have no clue who Jesus is, they can come into this church, sit in these chairs, feel comfortable and safe, they can learn and hopefully find some healing in their lives. But what begins to happen far too frequently that I've seen in my travels is Christians, well-meaning at times, begin to transform their church, this supposed hospital, into a country club where we pay our dues, so to speak, we want to be entertained, and we want to hang out with people who look and act just like us. And we kind of put our hands up to anybody who may not be like us. Now, maybe, maybe we start saying like, no, all are welcome here. Sure, sure. No, all are welcome in this church. Yeah. But what begins to happen is that when we find out they're not exactly like us, we kind of begin to stiff arm and say, well, you can't volunteer or you can't get plugged in until you really believe what we believe and you sign the dotted line. And, and, and that's a problem. Now, I've told this story many times, and I'm going to tell it many times since, but when we began this church, when we started the, you know, research and development of what we were going to do, we knew a statistic existed out there about the Tri-County area. We knew that in Palm Beach, in Dade, and in Broward, 87% of the population does not go to church at all. That's a big number. Now, most of my friends and family do not go to church at all. And we knew that when we wanted to start a church, we wanted to create a place where that 87% might actually want to go, maybe learn something. And so we asked my friends and family, and we said, you're not going to insult us. We, you know, we work in a church. You, just tell us why you don't go. Give us some insight why you don't go to church. And their responses shocked us. Honestly, we were shocked. Because I can honestly say, not one person that we spoke to said the reason they don't go to church is because they disliked Jesus Christ. Almost none of them said they had a problem with Jesus. You know what their problem was with? Christians. So the church was the problem. 
And unfortunately, we're the church. They got a problem with us. That's a problem. And I just sat back and I was thinking about this message. And I was thinking, you know, if we exist as a church, and if our job as Christians is to go to those who don't go to church, to, those, to go to those who don't know Jesus and share his message, if those people don't have a problem with Jesus, they have a problem with us, then what are we doing that he's not? Why did sinners, unbelievers, whatever you want to call them, why did they feel comfortable and safe in the presence of Jesus, who was God, but they don't feel comfortable or safe in the presence of his followers. That's the point of this entire series. For the next couple of weeks, I want to take a look at the way that Jesus treated people. Because he always shared the truth. He never shied away from that. But people liked him. They felt safe around him. They felt comfortable around him. So you can think of this series as a guide where we look at Jesus' life and he is going to help us learn to live in the world, to begin to share our faith with people who may need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And each week we're going to take a look at individual interactions. Today I want to share with you a very short interaction. You may have heard this story before. It's very popular. Uh, It's short. We've touched on it a couple times here at this church, but we've never taught on it. So it's found in John chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can open up. If not, you can always follow along on the screens. It says this, Early in the morning, he, and that's Jesus, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees, that's the Jewish uh, leaders, spiritual leaders. So the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, making her stand before all of them. So here's the picture. There are probably hundreds of people standing around Jesus. Picture like a large, large church. And these religious leaders grab this woman, drag her in front of the whole crowd, and throw her on the ground. So what do we know about this woman? Because she's a a famous woman in the scripture. What do we know about her? Not much. Just a couple of things. Number one, we know that she was potentially married. At least the guy was married. Because the charge levied against her was adultery. If they were both single and they were caught, you know, doing that, it would be fornication. So we know that one of them was married. The other thing we know is that she was Jewish. It doesn't say that she was Jewish, but the fact that these Jewish spiritual leaders were getting involved in her life means that she was Jewish. They wouldn't get involved with someone who was a Gentile or someone who was not Jewish. So it goes on. Making her stand before all of them, they said to him, this is Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. And you got to wonder, how did that happen, right? Okay, I'd love to know that. Now, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him so that they may find some charge to bring against him. All right, so what are we seeing so far? A couple of things. Number one, let's talk about the woman real quick. It is clear that these Jewish spiritual leaders had no desire whatsoever to bring healing into this woman's life. At no point were they looking for restoration. At no point were they looking to fix her marriage or the guy's marriage. They simply wanted to embarrass and humiliate this woman. She was just a pawn in this whole charade that they were about to do. Because the real motivation for this event is that they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to test him. They wanted to catch him so that they could bring some charge 
against him. Now, if you're new to church, you may, and maybe if you're not new to church, you might ask the question, well, what was their problem with Jesus? Because over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see these scribes and Pharisees and Jewish leaders, they're going to pop up time and time again. These guys were a thorn in Jesus' side, his whole ministry. They were always trying to get him. Why? What was going on here? Well, first, you notice that they called him teacher. Teacher was kind of a, a sign of respect. You would call a rabbi teacher. But these men did not respect Jesus. This was pure sarcasm, pure sarcasm. These guys believed that Jesus Christ had no credentials whatsoever, which is laughable, to be teaching God's word. You see, in their mind, if you wanted to be a rabbi, if you wanted to be a teacher, you had to, in essence, go to their seminary. You had to learn under their pre-approved rabbis. And Jesus, in their mind, completely sidestepped their man-made system. And that bothered them a lot. Secondly, they saw Jesus as being soft on sinners. He holds himself up to being a teacher of the word. He holds himself up to being a man of God. And yet they, with their own eyes, witnessed this man of God, witnessed this rabbi eating and drinking with sinners. Prostitutes, tax collectors. I mean, what kind of rabbi are you? Hanging out with these unbelievers, hanging out with these outcasts. These, what is going on here? But let's not be naive. Because the real reason that these men hated Jesus is they were jealous. It drove them crazy that wherever Jesus went, literally crowds, sometimes thousands of people, flocked to hear him speak. People who were nothing like him wanted to hear what he had to say, and they loved him, and he loved them back, and it drove the spiritual leaders absolutely crazy. And so they had to get rid of Jesus. They were going to discredit him or get him arrested or maybe even get him killed. So in this situation, they have set up this trap. That's what they're going to do here. So what is the trap? The first trap is this. It's the law of Moses. They say, all right, Jesus, you know the law. You're a teacher of the law. The law specifically states, and we're talking Ten Commandments, and then they created 613 laws outside of the Ten Commandments. They go, in the law, you know that we are supposed to stone this woman. What do you say? Because they knew Jesus. They knew he's soft on sinners. They knew he would probably say, "Mm, let's let her her go. I don't know if we should do that. Let's let her go. And if he does that, then he is telling every single person who's watching him this moment, because there's hundreds watching him, he is telling them effectively that he is unfit to be a rabbi. For a rabbi to go against the word of God, no, 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 no. That's a big problem. They want to catch him with this. But if Jesus somehow surprises them, and says, you know what? You're right. The law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. Let's, let's, who's got a stone? I'll, yeah, I'll go first. If he says that, then they can catch him with the law of Rome. You see, at this point, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. And the Romans held sole authority over capital punishment. So if all of a sudden says, Jesus goes, you know what? We've got to kill her for this. They can go, gotcha. And now they can accuse him of being a rebel against Roman authority. I mean, at some point, like, you got to give it to these guys. And this is a brilliant trap. I mean, it really, really is. They have absolutely backed Jesus into a corner. To use a phrase, and I'll clean it up because we're in church, he's darned if you do and darned if you don't. He, there's, he's, there's no way out of this. They got him. They really have. So the question that I want to focus on today 
In this situation here, the question is this. How does Jesus respond when he's faced with what I'll call obvious sin? Sin that is visible. Sin that you can't see. Sin that's not private. And by the way, there's no such thing as private sin. I mean, we may not be able to see what's going on in one another's hearts, but God knows exactly what's going on. So how does Jesus respond to obvious, flagrant sin when he, when he comes face to face with an adulterer or with a criminal or with a whatever? Sin that can't be ignored, what does he do? And for the purposes of this series, how does Jesus want us to respond in such situations? Because the reality is this. Every single day in our lives, we are going to run into people with sin. Maybe it's in our families. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at the gym or at school. Just there are going to be people that you are going to run into that just have in your face sin. And what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to react? So Jesus, law of Moses, says we got a sinner. We got a stoner, pardon me. What do you say? And the way that he responds to this is amazing. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Picture this for a moment. These guys, who I imagine are very angry, are coming at him. He is surrounded by people just waiting to see what he's going to say. And he bends down, and he just starts quietly writing on the ground, not saying a word. And for hundreds of years, thousands of years, theologians have been wondering, what did he write? What was he writing on the ground? I mean, what a moment to go silent. What a moment to just start writing in the dirt. And we don't know. It wasn't recorded for us. But what we believe happened is that Jesus in that moment was creating a picture for us to see. He wanted to remind those men and that crowd that God himself, with his finger, wrote the original Ten Commandments. That he was the creator of the original law. The law that these men were trying to use against this woman. The law that these men were trying to hold this woman accountable to. The law that Paul says is clear. It shows every single person in this world that they are guilty of sin before the eyes of God. It's this law. And with this in mind, it says that he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. One of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. Whoever of you has no sin in your life, here, go. You go first. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And whatever he wrote, we'll never know. But the effect was clear. He was trying to force these men, and probably everybody in the room, to remember their own sin. The most embarrassing times in their life. He was trying to make these men feel as though they had been dragged into the temple, exposed and half naked. 
See, the message that Jesus was sending in that moment was very, very clear. You don't have the right to condemn. You don't have the right to condemn this woman. And as I read these words, I just, we're all guilty of this. I mean, last week we talked about the fact that we have created this hierarchy of sin that doesn't exist. That these guys are saying, well, I haven't committed adultery, but she has. And that's worse than what she's done, so I'm going to point a finger at her. And we're all guilty of that. We go, well, I've got my sins, sure. But that guy, that guy's got some sin in his life. And I'm going to point it out. And I'm going to tell everybody. And Jesus goes, I'm sorry, but that just isn't how it works. So he says to them, yeah, you got no sin in your life? You throw the first stone. And when they heard this, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Continues. Jesus straightened up and said to her, and by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this whole time Jesus has been kneeling on his knees. I, I think that's amazing. What I think he's doing in that moment is I think he's showing us a picture of what meekness looks like. In one of his most famous sermons, Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. You've probably heard that. We misunderstand that to mean meek means weak. That is not what meek means. Meekness is that when you are under provocation, when someone is pushing up against you, and you have the power to absolutely just pummel him, you decide not to. Think about this for a moment. Jesus, God in the flesh, is being accused by man. And he's on his knees before man. He has the power to destroy these guys. He has the power, if he wants, really to condemn this woman. But he's choosing to be on his knees before man. And he says to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. No one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. That's the story. It's a short one, and it's powerful. And what I'm looking to do every single week is after we do this, the message, I want to I break, and I want to ask the question, how do we follow Jesus' lead? That's the point of this series. What can we learn from this particular interaction so that when we go out into the world and we reach people who have got sin in their lives, obvious, flagrant sin that people are pointing their fingers at and going, you're a sinner, you're this, you're that, how do we respond? What can we learn from this particular interaction with this adulterous woman and these spiritual leaders? What can we gain? What perspective can we learn from this interaction? First one is this. There should absolutely be no condemnation of unbelievers. That's clear. That's what he said. Now, one of the most famous lines in Scripture, one that Christians are taught to memorize, you know, when they grew up, is John 3.16. It says this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So many of us have had this memorized. I'm sure if I asked some of you right now, you could repeat it out loud. Athletes will put 316 on their cheeks. People in the crowd hold John 316 signs. This is, in essence, an encapsulation of the gospel message. We love John 316. We've memorized it. But we haven't memorized the next line. Or maybe we've forgotten. Because John 3.17 says this, For God did not 
send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. It's because of John 3.17 that we learn that this is why Jesus did not condemn the adulterous woman. If he did, it would completely undermine the reason that God sent him into the world in the first place. Now, if you've grown up around church or maybe you're not a Christian, this line and Jesus' behavior might shock you because we kind of feel like many of us feel that churches and Christians live to condemn. Just what we do. We live to point our fingers at people who've got things going on in their lives. We love to boycott stuff. We love to picket things. Oh, we love that. And we love to point out all the wrongs in the lives of those who are unbelievers, who are not followers of Jesus Christ. But Paul, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. Paul said something amazing. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? He's gone, I'm a Christian. What, what business is it of mine to judge those who aren't, who aren't Christians? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. What Paul says here is so key for us to understand if we are Christians. You have to understand that criticizing and judging and condemning those who are not believers of Jesus Christ, when you judge their behavior, when you point out their mistakes, when you point out their lifestyles, whatever you want to call it, when you do this, you are undermining the purpose and the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, here's something that's true. You can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Let me say that again. You can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And yet we do all the time. We expect it. We want it from everybody. But that's not fair. That's not right. They haven't signed up for our system of morality. They haven't said yes to Jesus. So why are we holding them accountable for their behavior when they haven't said yes to Jesus yet. And let's be honest, shall we, folks? We're Christians, and we barely act like Christians. You ever think about that? We're trying to hold the world accountable to a system of morality that we're failing at every single day. And yet we hold them accountable. This is why Jesus shows us in this story that it's so important that we see our own sin. That's what he says to these guys. He goes, eh, those without sin, you throw the first stone. And this is not the first time that Jesus has challenged us to see the sin in our lives. In Matthew 7, he says something great. He goes, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there was a plank in your own eye. He goes, you hypocrite. Calling Christians, he goes, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. See, here's the truth. I don't want to generalize, but I'm going to because I like doing that. I think we as Christians have made ourselves judge of the world. That, that we are now the morality police for all of civilization. And this doesn't leave this room here. Can I just say something? It's between us, okay? We think we're morally superior, don't we? 
let's just, between us, no one's watching online, obviously, or it's not being recorded. We think we're being morally superior. We do. I would just challenge you this. Let me ask you a question. If you are someone who is quick to judge, I'll just call it culture. And before we take ourselves out of the game, let's just say that all of us, just for argument's sake. If you all are quick to judge culture, let me ask you this question. If Jesus were to write your sins on the ground, what would we say? If a group of guys grabbed you right now, dragged you kicking and screaming onto this stage, threw you here, and Jesus walked in these doors and he got down on his knees and he started writing your sins on the ground, what would we say? Anger? Envy? Something worse? He looks at us and he goes, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's what I think he's saying here. He goes, listen, you're a Christian. When you're one of my followers, I'm sending you out in the world. We've established this. I'm giving you a mission. It's to go out in the world. And when you're out in the world, you will come in contact with people who have sin in their lives. That might be one of your children. That might be someone else in your family. That might be someone in your neighborhood or your office or your gym or your school. And Jesus is saying, before you come down on them like a ton of bricks, remember, you have sinned too in your life. And when you take a step back to remove the plank from your own, to recognize the reality of your own situation, what that does is it creates something inside of you. It creates a posture of humility rather than an attitude of moral superiority. When you recognize that, yeah, I've said yes to Jesus, but you know what? I'm still a mess. I'm still a sinner. I'm not perfect. I do not have it all together. When you do this, when you recognize it, when you spend time to take the plank out of your own eye, it will enable you. He calls it to see clearly. I'll say it will enable you to have a grace-filled conversation with someone who's got something going on in their life. And the thing that made Jesus special is that he always had grace-filled conversations with every single person he met. Now, they accused him of being soft on sinners, but that's not really true. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. That's grace that he's offering this woman. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just let her go away and continue to make the mistakes that she's making. He goes, wait, 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 wait. I don't condemn you, but go your way and from now on, sin no more. That's truth. Jesus was filled with grace and he was filled with truth. And that's what he wants for us. Jesus, unlike those Jewish spiritual leaders, wants restoration for this woman and he wants restoration for every single person that we are going to come in contact with. So, at some point in your life, when Jesus sends you out in this world, he's going to put a calling on your life. At some point, he's going to want you to have a difficult, a potentially uncomfortable conversation with somebody. Maybe you have a child who's living a lifestyle that's just 
Maybe it's a coworker who's just making a bunch of unwise decisions in your life. Jesus has placed you in that person's life for a reason. And when it's that appointed time, when you've earned the trust of this person, when you've earned the right to speak into your life, God will let you know. God will tap you on the shoulder and say, it's time. It's time. And when you finally speak to that person, you say, hey, you know what? I'm not perfect. I got a lot going on in my own life, and I'm not, this is not me judging or anything, but I just want to talk to you about, I want to talk about something that's going on in your life right now. And when you approach that person in this way, the potential for restoration is unlimited. You have to understand that our ultimate goal is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. Jesus is sending us out into the world to live a life that will attract people to him, not push people away from him. And unfortunately, that's what the 87% of the population is saying that we're doing. We've got to start getting it right. That regardless of the sin in someone's life, we've got to treat them with love and mercy and respect because that's how God treated us. That's what God did in our lives. So what's the practical? If it is your first week at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the truth is this. This whole series is one big practical. It's one big guide to try to get life a little better when we're talking to other people. But I want to give you one practical this week because we talked about a lot. I want to give you one thing just to focus on. And it stems from the question that Paul asked. And it's this. What business is it of mine? This week as you go about your your days, whether it's at school or the gym or at work, I would challenge you to meditate on this. And I would challenge you to begin to become mindful of how you think about other people and whether you actually find yourself judging those around you, whether you find yourself holding people accountable to perhaps a system of morality that they didn't sign up for. Because maybe at some point in your life, you came down on someone like a ton of bricks for something that's going on in their life. And maybe that relationship is broken because of it. What would it look like if we followed Jesus' lead from this interaction? How much healing could take place if we approached people with love and respect and we said, I'm not here to condemn you. I love you. I'm here to help. Because our goal is restoration, not condemnation. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today and just talk about your son, Jesus. Lord, his truths are so profound. But what's even more amazing is how he interacted with humans. Lord, you have called each and every single one of your followers to go into the world and to share the message of Jesus Christ. And sometimes in the process, we've done some damage. I pray that today for the Christians in the room, 
that we might hit the reset. That we might be able to realize that, yes, we've been forgiven, but we're still a mess. That we've not been given the right to condemn, but we've been given the right to love. And I pray, Lord, that this week you would open us up, that you would put a spotlight on that mindset that we might have to judge, condemn, and criticize, Lord, and that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would help us to love those around us, to build them up, to draw them in, to show them the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what your son did on that cross. I pray, Lord, that I don't know what people are going through today, but I pray that you would meet every single person in this room at the place of their need. That even if someone in this room has fallen to the condemnation of Christians, Lord, I pray that you would let them know that that's not Jesus. That's just us making mistakes. I put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.